My home station, WHUP in Hillsboro, North Carolina, is currently running what we call a 50-50 fundraiser. That is to say, half of the proceeds from our spring fundraiser will help support local service industry workers affected by the coronavirus pandemic through the Hospitality Help Campaign. Being Reasonable Radio Program proudly supports this effort. To contribute, please visit whupfm.org and hit the donate button. Thanks for your support of independent radio and especially those facing tough economic times in our community. And now on with the show. So for those of you who listen to my show every week, uh, this show is going to be different and different moving forward in that this is the first show I'm recording under our new lives. I'm now outside and I have my guest with me and we are sort of an unnatural distance from each other. We're pretty far away. So if you hear noises you're not used to, that's why. Also, I own chickens. And so if you hear chickens in the background, that is why I'm sitting in my backyard. (laughs) What is your best argument or reason for why one should live a life that includes being a vegan? Why I'm vegan is that I, I've spent a lot of time with animals, I, lots of different species. I know what goes on in slaughterhouses. I know where, how most food, is, is, um, most food comes to us, and we're not killing animals that live a free life. And even then, even in that regard, I don't believe it's right. We could say believe, right? I don't believe it's right to kill a sentient being that doesn't want to die. And I, we know that animals are very similar to us, to humans, in their nervous systems and how they're put together. We share a lot of most of our DNA with animals versus plants. We do share a lot of DNA with plants, but we are closest to animals. We are animals, actually, of course. And so I think, you know, I think what happens with people, what I've noticed is that there's a real cognitive dissonance in how we look at, say, pets, uh, how we look at certain species as value, more valuable than other species. And I just think that's wrong. I think we don't fully understand all about what is going on in animals' heads, but we do know that they feel, that they form connections, that they're individuals. That and so to encapsulate your thoughts here, your primary evidence, is that uh, other animals feel pain, feel suffering, or their neurology, right. in some respects, are much like ours. Well, in a lot of, in and, many respects, yeah. They, they, in all respects, I mean, they have brains, they have spinal cords, they have, I even, I don't eat invertebrates either, so I'm not going to eat, you know, uh, mussels, clams, scallops, things like that. I also, I kind of draw the line at, in, at in, below insects. Um, I don't eat insects either. And, um, but... I would say, you know, it's interesting to me how I'm curious why people do what they do. Kind of similar, I guess, to your show is that why do people feel in this country, for example, that a cow is okay to eat, but a horse isn't okay to eat or a dog isn't okay to eat? And I it's it's very cultural and it's very much about how we are how we see certain species. But we know if you spend time with cows, if you spend time with pigs and, you know, we see the I see articles sometimes that come my way. Oh, uh. Uh, the, th- this pig is really smart or this pig formed a bond with a dog or something. And none of this surprises me because these are animals that are very intelligent and even a chicken will form a bond with another animal. And so I'm looking at your chickens. I have chickens too. I know we talked about that. I have lots of birds. Um, and so I, I just I just think that we we decide we decide what we're going to do based on what we feel we can live with. And I think that what people do is is how a lot of people think, and maybe not, every, of course, not everyone, I'm not making a generalization here, but I've noticed that people don't want to know a lot about where their food comes from. A lot of them don't. And um, if presented with that, they feel like they are giving something up. They cannot do it. Let's back up. And yeah. at the very beginning, you say that yeah. these thoughts are not beliefs per se, there's evidence-based. So let's right. talk about okay. one primary thought you have is that many animals have a neurologic structure similar to ours and have Uh the capacity to feel pain. And are you saying that, and I'm not saying this is the case, if for some reason someone could show you sufficiently Uh that you would understand in an anatomical sense that, well, this animal does not feel pain, then presumably you would change your mind on that. 
So if you said, yeah, in a theoretical sense, which I don't think is possible, but sure, is that if there's some species of animal that exists as an animal, I I actually don't know how it wouldn't feel pain because it's an evolutionary response to uh, their survival in their environment. And so all of this comes from survival. Um, But it's more than just feeling pain. Right. So, okay, sure, if it was an inanimate animal in some way, like a robotic animal that didn't feel pain or didn't suffer, then I would, sure, I mean, I have an open mind. I'm not a closed-minded person, but I don't think that is possible because an animal, by definition, is a a mammal, well, not necessarily a mammal, but evolves to survive in its environment and respond to stimuli. And with that comes a whole cognitive sense and other types of bonds. And so I don't think it's possible that that would happen. But um, does an animal need to have a a brain to feel pain? uh, The brain as we're defining it. I think what you look at when you think of pain is response to their environment and they need, you know, generally it's a neurologic, some kind of neurologic system. So I also think insects feel pain and they don't have a brain the way we think of a brain, but they have some sort of little brain or little uh, nervous system. So any insects, you know, people who we don't, we can't perceive necessarily if you pull legs off of an insect if that's pain, but they certainly respond in a way that looks like pain to me. And, And plus it's, doesn't make sense to me that if you pull legs off of an insect, for example, or squish it, that it wouldn't respond in a negative way because that goes against its very nature of survival. So, so for example, would an oyster feel pain? Because not, oysters presumably don't have central nervous systems. They don't have a central nervous system, but they do have a stimulus and they and they do respond to their environment. And it's a there was, um, for example, when I was in an undergraduate and there was a biology class and we were supposed to dissect alive, I think it was a muscle, and I didn't do it because I thought that was, you know, unnecessary to put an animal through that. I think they do feel pain in the way that goes against what I think is right. How do we know that? How do we know that is a good question. Well, they have a nerve, some kind of nervous reception. I don't recall the exact way to define their nervous system, but they are animals. They are just invertebrates. We think we can perceive things a certain way and say this animal doesn't feel pain because we don't hear a lobster screaming for its life, for example. But there is evidence that the lobsters do suffer and they don't have a fight or flight response, for example, so they don't die right away. We should not assume that we understand all things about animals. And instead of erring on the side of, well, they don't suffer, they don't feel pain, it doesn't make sense to me to do that because they're designed in a way to, to feel that. And they are, yeah, so I would, I err on the other side of benefit of the doubt of the animal. How do we know what it's like to be another animal? I don't think we do. I think we don't. I think we go, we have a reality that we exist in, and I don't think we know, but there's so much evidence from people who work in like slaughterhouses, the changes in an animal's behavior when it goes from a farm to a slaughterhouse. There's plenty, many accounts I know personally from people who've told me that they raise an animal and they take it to a slaughterhouse and it completely changes because there's the smell of death and blood. And And as you see, we have chickens in my backyard and I don't know if my chickens are happy or I don't know if they're feeling pain. But if we had some kind of magical device. Mm-hmm. And I pressed a button mm-hmm. and my chicken's life ended. Mm-hmm. And by definition, I would think painlessly, just ended. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Would that meet the criteria of not suffering? It may not. It may meet the criteria of not suffering, but that chicken didn't want to die. So, I mean, we don't even know if we, by what you're saying, we don't know if the chicken is feeling pain or not. How do we know they didn't suffer? And how do we know... I mean, we, 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 we euthanize our pets, for example, and we hope that they don't suffer. And we usually people who euthanize their pets, they do it at an end of life situation where they're in other types of pain. But we are still making that decision. And I think humane euthanasia is, pro- is a good thing if the animal is really, really suffering. But so, so we're talking about chicken. something different. Right, we're, but you're talking ta- about suffering. And so I'm right. saying with so, the chicken. So, so there's suffering yeah. aspect of it. And you're introducing, just want to understand, yeah. introducing another argument of self-determination. Okay, right. But that chicken, you ended a chicken's life because for a reason that I don't think is right for in this hypothetical scenario because you wanted to eat it or something or I don't know why. But if the chicken was healthy, walking around, having its day, 
I don't think it's right to then end its life and say it didn't suffer and then eat the chicken. The way I view it is any time we're using animals for a reason such as we're saying, free-range eggs, whatever, that it, you, most of the time, the vast majority, and there are exceptions, where we use animals for our purpose, it leads to exploitation of animals. And this has, there's many examples where people say we don't kill the animal, blah, blah, blah. Eventually that animal will be killed, like for dairy, for instance. And the long-term benefits to the animal are not the priority. And so I don't think it's right to use animals in this way. Um, to advocate to say, okay, in this situation, you have, you know, this beautiful yard and these wonderful chickens. And sure, th this is probably like the best case scenario where you press a button and then the chicken and then I wouldn't feel terrible necessarily that you were like this horrible person. But the but my general way of being a vegan is not to advocate for these very particular situations where people might raise backyard animals, treat them really well, and then decide that they're killing them humanely. I think that any time we open the door for this, it leads to animal exploitation. And so I don't believe it's right. I'm just trying to understand. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. seems like that we're holding two concepts in our head simultaneously. We have the concept of suffering, uh -huh. and then we also have the concept of self-determination. And the offshoot of that is exploitation. If you don't have self-determination, then quite possibly someone could be exploiting you. I think that's what you're I saying. I think eventually it leads to exploitation. So I think of, for example, we have two goats and they're, you know, part of our family. And uh, there's these, um, just bring this up as an example, there are these, um, uh, sometimes you see goats out that are hired to clean brush. And one wonders, you know, what happens to them at the end of their lives? Do they, are they pets? There's right. like herds of 50 goats. So I don't know. I mean, yeah, there's some, there's some seemingly very nice uses of animals, but then at the end, I want, I'd like to know what happens to those animals. And for the record, <laughs> uh, we don't kill our chickens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But, and like I said, I'm not, I don't, I'm not here to yeah. tell people how to live. Right, I just right. think people but should just, acknowledge know, just, what they're doing is all right. <laughs> when people say, I'm not a vegan, yeah. why typically are they not vegan? Oh, I have no idea okay. why they're not vegan. I can tell you what my general thought is, is that they, one, feel like they're giving something up, that they cannot survive without meat or dairy or cheese or ice cream or whatever, some people think that they won't be healthy. And we know that that, you know, there's plenty of human cultures who are, which are vegan, vegetarian, whatever. I think there's that. I think giving something up is a big problem for people. And I also think they don't know or don't want to know where their food comes from. And most people want to see their chicken wrapped up in a nice little box, like little box. And even me, like I, I'm a, I mean, I see this in myself of blocking out terrible things I see about animals. Like I have to, and, and I'm able to do it. Like, oh, I could say like this terrible thing is happening at some nearby, like like a truck of chickens spilled over on I-40 or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think that's horrible and I want to drive down there. And then I know I can't do that for whatever reason. And I just sort of block it out in a way. And I think that's a survival mechanism. Generally speaking, what in your life makes your life worthwhile? Yeah. I mean, okay. That's a good question. What makes my life worthwhile? Well, my husband and I have a really uh, nice existence with our animals. Um, I love our home life with our animals that we consider family members. And we have, you know, horses, donkeys, and chickens, and goats, and like, the list goes on a little bit. Now, um, when So when you have, you yeah. have a lot of animals, it seems yeah. like you have horses and donkeys. Yeah, a couple of each, like not like 50 of them, but yeah. If we were to decide what was to make your favorite horse's life worthwhile to that horse. How would we go about doing that? I spoke with my husband about who's your favorite, and then the right answer is there's no favorites because then I feel bad for the other okay. one. What animal makes that animal's life worthwhile? It's a really good question because I spent a lot of time with these animals, and the first thing I'll say is I don't know exactly what's going on in their heads, but the donkeys and the goats and the horses, they all live a different kind of day, and they interact periodically with each other, and then they are disparate at other parts of the day. So now I'm going to ask you a question, okay. and I'm going to talk about this in the third person, not relating to you. Okay. Okay? So let's suppose there is Sarah, and I really don't mean this to be a dark scenario. But That's fine. It may <laughs> seem that way, but Sarah is married, and she has a favorite horse, and... This is a scenario that's often used in philosophical uh -huh. corners. And there's a train coming down the tracks. Oh, yeah. And there's a switch. And a train has to go either to the left or to the right. 
And on one track, there's a horse. Yeah. And on another track, there is Sarah's husband. Yeah. And immediately the husband. <laughs> right, exactly. No, I already know this. We, we just saw this, actually. There was an episode of that we were watching. We watched The Good Place. So what I'm getting at, of course, is there a, a moral equivalency here yeah. between Sarah's favorite horse and Sarah's husband? A moral Like, is one life worth more? Yes. First of all, it's a very, it would be a terrible situation to be in. So you're asking there's a moral equivalency to human life or a human that I know and love versus a horse that I know and love. And I'd say, (laughs) right, like, I can't answer what I would do in that situation, but I would say that both lives are worth, I mean, I'd say they're worth the same. I mean, I can't, I would never put an animal's life and you, everyone, I'm sure you're going to get a lot of comments about this answer, being like, what a lunatic I am. But yeah, I assure you, yeah. when people have problems with the show, it's yeah. with me. It's okay, not with good. my guests. Well, you don't have to forward me those. <laughs> yeah. but, but this is going to, and this is the other thing about being vegan, by the way, is it generates a lot of feelings from people. Even if I just say I'm vegan, you sometimes get hit with a lot of comments but, about but, so just, how if we crazy. Just kind of, just, if we can just Yeah, yeah I don't know what quick. the answer would be. But yeah. are we saying that there is not any hierarchy, like an ant is worth, a human is worth... I don't think of worth- life that way. I don't think of it. No, I, I think that we as humans were so conditioned to think we're at the top and we and have. I'm not a- saying that we're at the top, but I'm saying that. Well, all- that's a hierarchy, though. Well, I didn't say we are at the top, but there is a hierarchy. Who would be at the top if not us? I'm not saying how the hierarchy exists, but you're saying that there is no hierarchy. Um, You know, it's a really good question and something to think about in and put this question to practice of what that means of why think about the high if there's a hierarchy or not i don't think of life in those terms and i think it's hard not to think in those terms because the answer very small and we don't we don't really interact with them in the same way we do as a mammal uh, do with mammals or or other types of animals so in terms of thinking in the in that way it goes against very much how our brains evolved of are we, how can we say we're not worth more than that little ant crawling around? I think it's a very hard thing to wrap your head around. Let's make the scenario more real. Yeah, okay. Since we're sitting outside yeah. at a fair distance apart talking to each yeah. other, we live in strange times. Right. We live in scary times, safe to say. And we could possibly be living in a time where supply chains could break down and we don't all of a sudden have certain luxuries Mm -hmm. to not eat certain things. Right. No, I I get it. Where are we then when we... You mean, would we eat our own animals? Is that the question? Is this a luxury? Yeah, I knew you I was thinking what you were going to say. Yeah. So is this a luxury? I think no. I think not now in these times. And I think you have to look back to it. Like, for example, there are many... Indian cultures, uh, or Indian culture, Buddhist, um, where vegan and vegetarian has been part of the, you know, for hundreds of years, part of the culture. So you talk about luxury, there's a very sometimes minimalistic, in terms of our perspective, way of living. My wife and I have had this discussion before. Yeah. We've discussed that we would never eat our chickens. Oh, we've, we've discussed could, the we hierarchy. We couldn't possibly, <laughs> because, our, because I understand yeah. where you're coming from. Our chickens yeah. have personalities. Yeah. They're yeah. smart animals. and. Yeah. And we treat them as just part of the, our family. Right. And we discuss we would never eat our right. chickens. I've had the same sort of joking discussion with so, my husband. Yeah. <laughs> am I seeing that as a luxury when if there is a situation where there is no food right. and I am starving, just for the sake of argument, yeah. is, this, is this a situation where would I, under certain circumstances, throw this out the window. Probably. It's sort of like the people who crashed in the Andes. Was it the Andes and they ate each other or they ate the dead bodies? I mean, there are certain scenarios that are so apocalyptic that you will go there and eat a person, a dead body, in order to survive. And it it would have to be such a catastrophe for there to be no food at all. So you'd have to even eat your... You didn't mention your dog. Why not eat the dog? Oh, I'd eat them in a second. Yeah. I mean, so I... So I... Sure. Okay. So in a... in It's sort of like we could come up with a lot of scenarios where it's so catastrophic that we'd end up either it's our life or the chicken. I We can go there if you want. I don't think that really addresses veganism necessarily. I think it's it's sort of getting at survival of the fit, survival of the strongest in this case. I think in in terms of a global food, we could feed the planet with plant-based food, period, whether it's plants or plant-based. And 
I don't think eating animals is feeding the world very well, and so, or eating their products. We speak with Aaron Dawson, Workplace Development Manager for the Industrial Commons, as he discusses his belief in how a cooperative economy can better build a more fair economy, coming up after this short break. home station, WHUP in Hillsboro, North Carolina, is currently running what we call a 50-50 fundraiser, where half of the proceeds will help support local service industry workers affected by the coronavirus pandemic. To contribute, please visit whupfm.org and hit the donate button. Thanks for your support of independent radio and especially those facing tough economic times. Essentially, I've dedicated my life to what I would say a, a more fair economy and, and the way in which I and, and a lot of the folks that I work with 
believe a fair economy can be best carried out is through a cooperative economy. So a cooperative economy is the stakeholders of these enterprises are the owners of these enterprises. What does that mean? So if you're a food co-op, if you're a grocery store co-op, right, the stakeholders are, are largely the consumers. So the consumers own the grocery store. It's a little bit different than a, a stock company, right? It's like it's largely and very much because it's a one person, one vote versus a one share, one vote. If I understand you correctly, a way to distinguish what a cooperative is as opposed to a non-cooperative business in the sense would be in traditional businesses, there's a demarcation between an employer and an employee. And in a co-op, the employer and the employee is generally the same person. Yes, for worker co-ops. Oh. So, so there are different types of co-ops. Uh, I think the biggest demarcation of a, of a co-op is that it's rather than one share, one vote. So you could have one person that owns a million shares and they get a million votes. Right. In a co-op, the member of the co-op only has one share and only gets one vote. So if you're a member of your local grocery store co-op, yeah. you can't get like 10 shares and have more votes than anyone else. You, you as a human entity can only have one share. Now, what is the advantage of a cooperative as opposed to a non-cooperative? Well, what I like, again, about the, the one share, one vote concept is it's, it's a very human-centric model, right? It assumes that what entitles someone to a vote is their personhood, and you can't gain more power by any other way. You have one voice, one vote. That keeps it very democratic. Our organization, apart from helping factories in Western North Carolina, we're actually starting employee-owned, worker-owned cooperatives. So we have started a worker-owned recycling co-op, Mm -hmm. uh, that's just getting uh, off the ground as of last year, and we're we're creating a worker-owned yarn co-op that's actually taking the waste material that the recycling co-op is collecting, and it's actually turning that waste material into to fabric, to yarn. If you are part of a worker-owned yarn factory, and you are directly next door to a non-worker-owned yarn factory... Is there typically a competition difference between the two types? Yeah, this is a good question, right? And, and also just to, to give a little bit more backdrop to who I am, I worked for 15 years for a worker-owned co-op called Equal Exchange. So that's got about, I think now, around 130 worker owners. It's a fair trade coffee company. So I have 15 years experience working in a worker-owned company. We manufactured coffee, so it was a factory. You know, the criticism about democracy in general is that it can be contentious, fractious, and take longer. So the criticism against a, a worker-owned, democratically run organization is that it will be less competitive because it'll take longer to make decisions, right? Okay. Because you have to check in with everyone, which is somewhat of a misnomer. A lot of the bigger worker co-ops are structured so that You've got a governance side, and then you've got a management side. So day-to-day, -day, at Equal Exchange, I had a manager. That manager had a manager. And if my manager told me what to do, I would have to do it. That was my job. I reported to that manager. At the same time, the governance side of things is the workers elect the board. So the workers vote on the board, and the board is comprised of the nine board members. Six of them are workers. So that becomes somewhat like a representational democracy, right? Back to the original question, when you have a standard running factory and a, a worker-owned factory, the general theory is that the, the standard-owned factory, the single owner or a, a stock, company, stock uh, company, is going to be more efficient. The, the counter-argument to that is that actually the more people are involved in decision-making the process leading up to the decision may take longer, but enacting, turning, enacting that decision, like turning the key and making whatever you've decided happen, is actually, in theory, more efficient because everyone's more bought in. So people have more skin in the game, so they would act in more of the company's 
best interest as a whole. Yes, and when you're involved in the decision-making process, you are more inclined to uphold the decision that's been made. This has become my new favorite example. For a New Year's resolution last year, my six-year-old daughter was like, Daddy, what are you going to be, what are you going to do for your New Year's resolution this year? I was like, oh, I don't know. And she's like, well, I think you're lactose intolerant, so you should eat less ice cream. And immediately, I wanted to eat more ice cream that year, right? So, like, when someone tells you what sure. you need to do, yeah. you want to immediately do the opposite. When you are part of the decision-making process, you're going to uphold it because you were, you were part of making that decision. So that's the, that's the efficiency theory, right? Is the reason why you do this, is it mostly for ethical and moral reasons? Is it for bigger, greater good issue? Or is it something else that we haven't discussed? Yeah, and that, that gets to the crux of the belief, right? Which is that what's, what's eloquent about a worker-owned cooperative model is that more people are involved in sharing the returns. Literally, if the company makes more money, you as an individual get more of that money. It's not going to someone else's pocket because you own the business along with your 150 other coworkers. It's a more equitable way of distributing the surplus. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I think about why do I believe in this, it's, it's, it, is, it is a fairer way to do business. It engages people as, as full humans. The term that I've heard is, in a traditional company, you are, you are renting humans. You are renting their labor. In this model, every person who's there in the organization is a full owner of that organization, and so their labor is going to themselves and to each other. Part of the bigger issue I think you're saying is what gives value to being a human? It would appear in our culture what you are saying gives value to humans is functioning within a broader sea of what the vast majority of people think about what gives value to being human. And that would be sheer productivity. I mean, just capitalistic ideas. Am I, right. am I off base there? It almost feels like two sides of the, of the same coin, right? Until AI takes off, the only way a company can make any profit is by the value off of your labor. So it views your labor as, as a, a value source. And at the same time, I think to be a, a full human being, your labor brings value to your life. So, I mean, we could go take it very far and say someone is stealing your productivity in a way. Someone is stealing your labor that you have rightly put into the company. Tell me if I'm way off. So are we talking about Marxist ideas? I think there is, there is a strain that one could see in that, although, you know, there is a strain of, of this sense of, of value through labor, which I think you can find very centrally through Marxism. I, I think the difference is this is still a model that can play very nicely with a free economy, right? With a uh, not state-run economy. It's just organizing the structure of the enterprise a little different. Right. I think I see where you, what you're saying. This could be seen as just another capitalist organization. It's sort of like having a one-person-owned company, but that one person does everything, or that group of people collectively do everything. Right. Or have the same stake in everything. Yeah. Right? Right. That's yeah. right. The challenge is, because it is harder to educate folks on how to exist in a, a truly democratic enterprise, it takes a lot of work. <laughs> It takes a lot of education, and there is an efficiency in top-down organizations that sometimes can't be met in these worker co-ops, right? And so I think that's been one of the challenges to, to the expansion of worker co-ops. When I think of how a cooperative runs, my question would be, are we getting at the fundamentals of human behavior in the sense that if given enough time, would a cooperative graduate into some kind of authoritarian structure or would the opposite be true? And what does that say more about what the nature of humans and their 
being guided by their own self-interests? Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, one of my favorite examples of like, we live in a quote-unquote democracy and we work in a, a semi-fascist regime is at least when I read the article 15 years ago at Calvin Klein, you were not allowed to have any color photos on your desks. You were only allowed, if you were working at Calvin Klein and you had photos on the, your desk, they had to be black and white photos. That because, is a strain of fascism, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, and companies around the world have these very strange anti-democratic rules, right? Right. And, you know, again, when you think about what would a country be look like if it were led by a business person, right? right? So a cooperative structure encourages democratic behavior because it is structured democratically. At the same time, humans are humans. And I think a cooperative, you could imagine a cooperative getting big enough and engaging in the same kind of anti-competitive behaviors that any very large enterprise would, right? And the more power one gets, let's say a, a cooperative gets very big and very powerful, those running that cooperative are going to be more powerful and therefore more inclined to decrease the democratic nature of it. It seems that the business model is structured more on egalitarian, ethical, moral grounds in a sea of companies that are less moral, less egalitarian, and it would seem like you would be behind the eight ball to start one in some instances, mm -hmm. or no? I, I mean, I think that's, that, that is a valid as a valid critique that the actual landscape is not like if you think of an ecosystem our current ecosystem it's it's probably a little bit harder to grow a co-op because of the landscape that we're in right for me what you know when i when i look at when i wrestle with that is that fundamental to human like is the ecosystem we have fundamental to humans and that's why we have it or is the ecosystem we have because it's the way some humans have figured out how to engineer it and that there is another world possible, but we currently aren't living that world because some have engineered it that way. What I think is really interesting in the co-op world is so much of our lives, we don't have a voice. In a co-op enterprise, it actually, you do have a voice, not on everything, but on a lot of things. And, and my father's always said this analogy, right? So. Society is sort of like a plate, right? And all the things, you know, the teachers that put you down or the police officer that told you look a certain way and you shouldn't be here, parents who said all these things and you couldn't say anything back. So you have no voice. And so suddenly you have this cooperative enterprise that says, we value your voice. All of that other stuff kind of, it's sort of like cutting a hole in the plate <laughs> and all of that other stuff comes up through the plate. Does that make sense? So it's sort of yeah. like, you suddenly have a voice, right. and so everything that you felt uh, estranged against or repressed against, you kind of shoot through this hole that is the, the worker uh, co-op enterprise. You have a lot of issues that arise in a worker co-op that you wouldn't have arise in a traditional company because that space and that desire for voice, to hear your voice, doesn't exist. If I work for Calvin Klein and I don't have a voice... Mm -hmm. and the decisions they make or made. Could it be argued that my voice is to simply take my marbles and go play elsewhere at a different, and that's my voice to play somewhere else at a different job? Yeah, that's the kind of exit voice or loyalty, right? I mean, you, you, have, you have these kind of three options, right? You can right. leave, you can voice your opinion, or you can stay, right? right? I think the challenge is there are so few places that, you can work that value democratic process that you might find benevolent dictators at a different company, right. but you still don't, you don't have many options for a, a true or even partially true democratic and structure. Something I hadn't really thought about too much. We live in a democracy, yet most businesses are set up like dictatorships. And it could be argued that co-ops are actually more democratic than the way businesses are run 
and would be more American in some sense. Yeah, I mean, I, it's just one of the fascinating components to life uh, to have these values with a, a big D, you know, big D democracy. But on our day to day, we are very much not operating in, in a democratic environment, right? Yeah. And, you know, frankly, there's a great book that I'm sort of remembering the title of like Labor Story in the History of the United States. Corporations have always been against democratic tendencies. I mean, so much so that, you know, you, if you research Ford's funding of Italian and German governments in the 1930s, it's somewhat shocking, right? So there's a fascist tendency in these, in these corporations, in part because it is so much more efficient on a kind of day-to-day basis. And if business is moving so fast, there is a real preference to efficiency. If, and I'm not saying this is the case, if you were to uncover evidence to show you that people who work in cooperatives are less happy and less satisfied than people who don't work in cooperatives, would that change your mind about cooperatives? No, I do. I think that's a great question. I think the counter is, and this gets somewhat philosophical, but is, is the point of anything to be happy or is it to be fulfilled? So I've also uh, took a master's in uh, management for co-ops and credit unions based out of, it's a master's correspondence program out of Halifax, Canada. And the founder of that program, Tom Webb, and I'm not going to tell the story as well as he did, but there's a, there was a woman who left her job at some corporate grocery store in Canada to work at one of the largest food co-ops in Canada. And on her first day, you know, he was talking to her and she was just so excited to work for an organization that has values that matched her values. And then like six months later, he came back and she was like, actually, it's my last week here. And he's like, oh, you were so excited. And she's like, you know, when people make mistakes or make decisions that you don't agree with here, it hurts more. Right, because you care more, and so it hurts more when things don't go your way. Yeah. So I think that's that's an interesting challenge, and I might diverge a little bit, but I think the other, the biggest challenge to co-ops in America is this American belief in individual rights over all outs versus the collective good <laughs> and the collective uh, will that I think really interferes with co-ops in America. Even, even You see even in progressive groups, in progressive co-ops, they have their, their identity, their um, values, and if the co-op isn't li- living up to ex- their specific values, they are angry at the co-op. Maybe what I'm thinking of along those lines is that in America, at least culturally, success is equated to how much money you make. And it seems to me that when you join a cooperative, that gets thrown out the window. And so your definition of success has to change. Yeah. Equal exchange has about a four to one pay ratio. Now it may be five, but I think it's still around four. So the, the, the person at the top isn't making more than five times the person at the bottom of the company. Right. The average for a, a U.S. corporation is, or at Starbucks, I think it's 200 to 1. And that's the average pay to the top, not even the lowest pay. So, so yes, you are definitely throwing this concept of individual monetary success out the window. I don't think that—so I'll, I'll tell you this. When I, so I was a— um, At Equal Exchange, for many years, I was the customer service manager of our call center. And I, it was, hiring was always the easiest thing. I would get the smartest, most educated, you know, I had people with master's degrees. Um, I would get the most amazing candidates to apply because they wanted to work for a company with values. Yeah. Like, there seems to be such a, to me, what was amazing was, why aren't there more value-based companies because there seems to be so many people in the world that are excited about the idea of being able to work for an organization that they feel good about right um and yet 
that's not what the world, or at least the U.S., offers as far as the job market. And so that always struck me as incongruent. It's yeah. like, how can there be so many people who want to work for an organization like this, and yet there aren't more organizations like ours? I feel like I should mention that if you're listening to this, you're listening to some unusual sounds in the background, <laughs> and those are chickens. <laughs> we are ha- holding this conversation at a, uh unusual distance from each other outside on my back porch where there are chickens running around. And so that's the sort of this new venue that you're hearing. <laughs> so you're not going crazy. <laughs> How do you feel like this conversation went? Good. I mean, I, I, I don't know. Honestly, I feel like maybe I should have been more deeply entrenched in what I believe. But <laughs> I, I think what's interesting, I mean, what I like about the worker co-op model, yeah. it is... By and large, pragmatic. It's a pragmatic solution to uh, uh, economic order, and and I find myself pragmatic. So, <laughs> Aaron, I think the typical listener to this show would probably appreciate that. <laughs> From the WHUP studios in downtown Hillsboro, North Carolina, I'm Mark Solomon. And you've just listened to another episode of Being Reasonable. Questions? Thoughts? Connect with us at beingreasonableshow.com. See you next week. WHUP is currently running a 50-50 fundraiser, where half of the proceeds this year help support local service industry workers affected by the coronavirus pandemic. To contribute, please visit whupfm.org and hit the donate button. Thanks for your support of independent radio and especially those facing tough economic times in our community. Just your average, no good, nothing On four legs, more human than canine Things aren't the same without you around Fed you Salisbury steak and ground beef Which I think might be the same guy 
thing I'm not up to horsing around I won't use that high voice I now love like I'm gonna get hurt The tennis ball for throwing is stuck in the dirt I sled down hills without you trailing me I miss you, my friend You could not see or hear But we were near And you weren't alone You spoke more words than anyone I've known A dog's life is short And now you are gone I'm not up to horsing around I won't use that high voice I now love like I'm gonna get hurt The tennis ball for throwing is stuck in the dirt I sled down hills without you trailing me I miss you, Bella